Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. And here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Today's podcast is very, very different. It's not about politics. It's not about the hatred of the left, the destruction of America. It's about something I know a little bit about called Fijian medicine, secrets of Fijian medicine, folk medicine. Now, everyone listening to this podcast has either drank Fiji water or seen someone drinking Fiji water or seen an ad for Fiji water. Now, this has nothing to do with Fiji water. This has to do with the people of the islands of Fiji. Today's podcast is brought to you in three parts. In the first, I tell you why I actually went and collected medicinal plants, what it meant to me, and I share initial writings about the beauty of the islands. In the second, I focus on the people of Fiji, their folk ways and wisdom, and share what were then my young man's ideas about Western culture and government. In the third part, I relate the travels of an older man, me, when I'm older, revisiting the islands and looking at the very small things as well as the big picture. I was a city boy who found himself in the farthest flung corner of the world you can imagine. Why did I do it? I was inspired by JFK to make the world a better place, for one. I was inspired by Ernest Hemingway to go to faraway tropical places, not to kill animals, but to find cures for disease. It was a crazy time in America. Others my age were joining the Peace Corps, but I needed something riskier, wilder, with more imagination. The Peace Corps were too tame for me. I wanted to go it alone, not as part of some organization. What did it feel like getting off the plane from civilization and stepping onto a warm, wet, tropical island filled with ancient history? And what did I do first? I looked around, appreciated nature, and I started to write in my journals. 
I was very fortunate. I visited Fiji in 1968 as an ethnobotanist, a student of ethnobotany, that's folk botany, collecting medicinal plants, and I was going to send them back. I did send them back, as you will see in a video I will put on social media, to um, the National Institutes of Health to try to find treatments and cures for various illnesses according to the healers that I was fortunate enough to be allowed to meet in the villages of Fiji. In plain English, I was out there collecting medicinal plants. I was a plant explorer. I did this from 1968 before Fiji became an independent nation. It was still a colony of Britain, if you can believe it. I was on those islands during the last gasp of colonialism in Fiji. There were no television sets in the outer villages up in the mountains where I went. There were no roads. You had to walk in, climb in, climb up hills, go down river. It's hard to believe that I'm telling you this right now, but that's the way it was. But I captured a nation or a country in the crucible of its own originality. And I codified the plants, the medicinal plants, as best I could. And then it was published as a PhD dissertation at the University of California at Berkeley. And then picked up as a book by the United Nations. I was told it was the first book the UN had ever published. There are copies of this book out there, but very few of them. They were stolen by a local book dealer in Fiji, a complete crook. If you look on the internet, you can find copies for $1,000, $500. I'm going to reprint this book for you in an inexpensive paperback edition. It'll take a while. For those of you who want to read the complete details and get the names of all of the plants, the actual botanical names, what they are, what they were used for, what illnesses, what the plants look like, and uh, etc. Eventually, you'll be able to order this paperback copy after I have it printed. If you want to get on a list of people to receive an email when it is ready, I will give you the email address at another time. I'll put it on my website, michaelsavage.com. Right now, I want to begin with Secrets of Fiji Medicine. Where shall I begin? I'll begin by calling this the art and science of collecting folk remedies. Filtered shafts of piercing light within an atmosphere of dense moistness. The tropical rainforest, a swollen river yesterday, beaten down, now coursing rapidly around banks. The result was sudden, impossible heavy rains. Then there is the beach and endless cobalt jade seas with visions of pirates and captains, treasures and disaster, a full sail, the trade winds, the night stars, an endless shadow box of mystery. These and other images first drew me to the islands of Fiji. Of course, the search was for healing plants, but beneath it all was poetry. Nature is the well of all poems, and her pure images have propelled men through countless quests. Like all men, my dream was fueled by images of glory, to bring back to world medicine a jewel of cure long sought. I did not realize then in the beginning of my journey that dramatic results often elude the searcher and that the treasure may be the search itself. You see, like a bad novel, a good life often appears pointless and undramatic, yet beneath the apparently pointless existence, there may be a series of great gifts known only to our creator. 
the spirit of spirits. You see, in this way, my rather undramatic series of visits to Fiji may offer yet unrecognized treasures, but this depends upon the future directions of pharmaceutical research. You see, should our infatuation with synthetic drugs go on, the medicinal plants described in this book and today on this podcast and those listed elsewhere, and even other natural medicine-oriented cultures and sources, will remain mere objects of medical curiosity, throwbacks to a more primitive romantic phase of medicine in the eyes of those who are trained in creating medicines from other than natural sources, meaning the drug companies. Yet I will say that great treasures may await the research chemist or pharmacologist, the corporate executive or government leaders willing to gamble on their own backyards. Why root in strange vineyards for cures to our ills when solutions may be found in our own forests or underneath our own seas? Why import costly drugs, sedatives, tranquilizers, first aid creams, sore throat, painful head and stomach remedies? Why, when local plants may work more effectively with fewer side effects and at much lower costs, which will be spent at home and not sent abroad, further unbalancing national economies? A majority of the 150 or so medicinal plants that I describe in the third and final parts of Secrets of Fijian Medicine or Fiji Medicine that I'm now talking about can also be found growing throughout other Pacific islands, especially the coastal growing plants, and many also grow in regions of Southeast Asia. Some of these medicinally useful plants will be familiar to residents of or visitors to these tropical nations and their utility recognized immediately by them. The point I'm making is the remedies which I've chosen to tell you about today go far beyond one island group in their availability. Many of these plants can be found throughout the tropics and used in local medicine. I want to say at this point that I've collected these plants and I have all of them in various collections in different herbaria around the world. Some of them are in the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. Others are collected in the New York Botanical Garden. Others are in an herbarium in Moscow. Others are in the Kew Gardens in London. There's a collection in Paris of all of these plants. And I'm hoping by putting these plant specimens in these herbaria around the world, people will eventually come back and look at them with a new interest, even 100 years from now. Maybe they'll find out what's in them after analyzing them that worked for the Fijian healer. And by doing so, they could develop a medicine useful for people of the world. I have long wanted to create a fusion of art and science. Art with science because I found that a long time ago, the very finest scientists I have met rely on their intuition just as great artists approach their creations with the precise skills and methods of science. But I will tell you, the fusion I have sought continues to elude me. This is an odd presentation. In a way, it must be so. Until medical systems and cures of ancient times are accepted for what they are. What are they? They're not just old folk healers poking around in the woods. They are the scientific product of ages of experimentation by the people who found them and used them over a long period of time. Michael Savage, a host like no other. In part two, you will find that even as a very young man, I was thinking deeply about world affairs and about politics. Although I was there to search for medicinal plants, I wanted to understand that interplay between the human need for freedom and society's need for order. And I was already seeing the ways in which my own culture was handicapped, literally crippled by fake news and fake people, a focus on material possessions above all, 
a lack of self-awareness and self-reliance. Already I was wondering how much longer the earth and the people on it could survive our self-created disaster. My conversations with Fijians about these topics and about religion and what makes for good life enriched my thinking enormously. I hope you enjoyed them. Let me pick up where I left off. Here's a piece of a conversation with a Fijian I got to know very well. In fact, this podcast is going to be random pieces from my searching medicinal plants. I was speaking with a young Fijian who knew a lot about the local botany, and here's what he said to me. He said this. He said, your people are a strong-willed people, very smart, but they lose the very things they want us to do once they make us follow their ways. You think we had no moral code of our own, Michael? That we just did anything that came into our heads? No, Michael, we are people with very strong traditions. This is how we survive for thousands of years. And so I answered him and I said, but I look at my own people with their religions and their new gods and wonder how much longer we will survive. Is this an advanced civilization where most conversations spin around possessions and how to obtain the medium of obtaining them? As Aldous Huxley wrote, like Milton Satan, we seem doomed to lives in hell precisely because of our unwillingness to enact the two key virtues, understanding and compassion. So-called advanced nations exhibit many virtues in common with the great gangsters and dictators. They may be nationally brave, strong, generous, loyal, prudent, temperate, self-sacrificing, but they lack the keys to salvation, which are understanding and compassion, and are thus the most evil. Must the rulers of advanced nations, like the United States, Russia, France, England, actually write the scripts which drive most human organisms into patterns of behavior for which they're so maladapted? By not acting to stop these distortions, the government rules. People are encouraged to eat food so mutilated as to render them nutritional impotence. Various popular literature is published from the medical profession which encourages less self-awareness and therefore less self-reliance. Creative expression comes to mean buying a new article created in a factory. The churches become mere sleeping places and the people slip closer to the cliff. How much longer will we allow advertising and publicity to guide this planet through her fragile course? Isn't it time that our brain cells, the smartest people on earth, took command, leaving these able but unvisionary other sorts, the practical men, the practical women, the manipulators to their tasks? In these years where perhaps the species and the planet have yet a chance, I ask, who is at the helm? Never before has so much power been in the hands of so few people. Never before have we had the opportunity to communicate with, if not meet, beings from other celestial systems. Should our butchers and bakers and candlestick makers continue to speak for the species, we may all wind up just so many scattered atoms, no matter how skilled their practical hands. Well, that was me in 1968, or 69 rather, in the Mosi villages. I was speaking with a young boy. Maybe I spent too much time alone in dark villages. Maybe I went upriver. Maybe I talked to beings from other planets. I can't tell who was in that bury late at night. I'd like to include another piece from this book, Secrets of Fiji Medicine, which is going to be republished as Fiji Medicine, or I don't know the title yet. You can buy it on Kindle or in a hard copy. And um, here's a piece I wrote, Mystery Heart Drug Described, back in 1969. 
And it goes like this. I finally gotten a copy of the newspaper article that Dominico told me about. It's undated from the Honolulu Star Bulletin and titled Fijian Tree May Aid Heart Patients by Lynn C. Thomas. Dateline Suva Fiji. And it goes like this. A mystery tree containing a drug that may cure coronary diseases believed to be the bovo tree, traditionally used by Fijian witch doctors as a cure for heart ailments. In London, Dr. Keith Jewers of the Tropical Products Institute said, British doctors have discovered the drug in the bark of a tropical tree growing only in Fiji, but he refused to name the tree. A Department of Agriculture botanist here, Mr. Domenico Corvembo, said that he was not sure what tree was used in the British experiments, but it may have been the bovo, which the Fijians use for heart and blood problems. Corvembo said the Agriculture Department had sent more than 10,000 botanical specimens to the Institute in London in the past 10 years, and he has written to Dr. Jewers for the name of the tree. For centuries, Fijian witch doctors have used plant drugs to cure human ailments. In many cases, they have been found to work as well as drugs produced by modern medicinal laboratories. That was from the newspaper article. Here's what I then followed it up with. According to my guide and friend, Dominico, the correspondent was just guessing. He heard that bovo was a medicinal plant used for heart problems in Fiji and apparently contrived this story. The actual species, which is highly confidential, is, I'm not going to give it to you in this podcast, it's BV. The genus is Blecaria and the species I will not give you. When Dom saw me collecting them, he said, why are you collecting those? And I asked him, well, oh, they're just interesting to me. Why are you interested in them, he said. And one thing led to the other, and he told me the actual name of the secret plant. This is Michael Savage. I'll continue in a minute. Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. In part three, I'm going back to the islands a few years later. You can hear in my writing that I have matured as a man and as a thinker. I am putting together my work with that of those who came before me. I'm appreciating the small things. Local art, local sculpture, alongside the larger questions, such as what if Hitler had won? What would the islanders have become? I'm asking fewer questions, making bolder assertions. More importantly, you will hear the beginnings of borders, language, and culture. Listen to how I respect the native culture, the indigenous culture, and how I tell the schoolboys I had casually met that they should be learning their own history and protecting their own land. I'm going to pick up later on in my book on Fiji medicine, in random places and right now I want to pick up in 1972 in a section that we will call travels in the South Pacific this is when I went back there after the third or fourth time and I wrote this in my journals looking at a brick copra furnace smoking I wonder what life for the Fijian would have become had mad Hitler succeeded with his dire plans arm Nazis directing traffic police with machines and weapons lording it over the people no room for laughter would Fijian customs have been outlawed? Or would a Nazi racial anthropologist have decided it would be easier to control the population by leaving their customs intact? Very little in the way of new buildings since 1971 or 1969, for that matter. The great increase in land prices is due primarily to speculative buying. 
I was told new laws have been enacted to require construction on land newly purchased to eliminate this inflationary cycle. I'd like to pause right here and say, why don't we do that here? The mountains of the Korom Basambasanga range in silhouette across Suva Harbor still silent, still deep. The element that makes these islands more alive for me than, say, the Hawaiian group is the fact that in virtually every direction, somewhere within these silent mountains, there are villages intact with many of the most significant Fijian ways. Thus, a hike through the bush yields more than scenery. And on this point, we plan two such journeys on this trip. On Thursday or Friday of this week, we plan on proceeding to Namosi Village via Auto to the Windina River, and then by outboard riverboat to 10 or so miles to Namosi. I understand this time of year, July, the river is higher, it being winter, than during September, the time of year I last went to Namosi in 1969. Thus, I needn't walk the last 10 miles where the river ran out. This sounds trite compared with the long walk Dominico, that's my friend and guide at the time, went on in February with Professor Harold E. Moore, Jr., who again returned to Fiji just to find a single specimen of that elusive palm, Gonio cladis. This species was last collected deep in the Singatoka Valley around Kuruvu by the patriarch of American botany, Professor Harold St. John. Those specimens were collected by him in the 1930s, but were later destroyed along with the Berlin Herbarium during World War II. And so Hitler brought his effects on Fiji after all. <laughs> God, that's funny. Not funny in a way. I stopped in the commercial art gallery this afternoon to look at the New Hebridean masks and other artifacts brought in by participants of the South Pacific Arts Festival. They were all priced around $30 to $65. Had I come down at the end of May, as I tried to do but couldn't get any of five magazines to buy the idea to cover the South Pacific Arts Festival, I could have bought these items for a few dollars each. The city was filled with South Pacific craftsmen, poets, entertainers, and of course, tourists for this grand occasion sponsored by the South Pacific Commission. Most every room was filled to overflowing in both commercial and private homes. Even the First National City Bank's local branch wisely purchased some of the best of the New Hebridean crafts. Of particular appeal to me was a pig club whose handle was shaped after a thick penis with circumcised glands. They purchased several of these clubs and mounted them in their Suva branch. It's good to see that one of America's largest phallic worshippers appreciates that element as represented by another less devious culture. That's supposed to be a joke. By the way, I purchased several of these masks, not the phallic uh, pig club, and I still have them locked away in boxes somewhere, if you can believe me. Watching some Fijian schoolboys on the way home from late classes stop by to watch me write in this large 10 by 12 ledger book. They told me they were studying history, but were at a loss to explain who teaches them their own, their Fijian history. What this place needs now is a radical but honest native historian to explain to these children the meaning of the term real estate. The land is their only real estate, yet somehow so much of it has already been given over to so many honorable foreigners in their pursuit of escape, recreation, or profit. Just how did the U.S. Consul to Fiji in the late 19th century, John Brown Williams, managed to force the ruler, Fakambao, into giving away over 200,000 acres. Although most of these acres were never claimed by Europeans, because Britain, after session, honorably declared the debt closed, all of the land on which is now built the city of Suva 
was part of these acres. Can you believe this? Wow. In Coloco Levu Village this afternoon, I recorded remedies in the usual passive way while Dominico Corvembo, my guide and friend, conducted the formalities. But I almost fell asleep due to the effects of the Yangona I had been drinking all day. I was totally sedated. Yesterday, as we drove home from our interview in outlying villages on King's Road, Dom commented on the policy of credit in a large London-based Suva furniture store. He thinks that no matter what the interest rates or the terms of credit, it's a great system that allows the poorer people to catch up with the richer ones. Regarding money in general, he said this, The farmers are worried now. The women only make mats and baskets for the tourists. In five years' time, we may decide we don't want money. Go back to the old ways. Now we feel ashamed to borrow a cup of sugar from our neighbors. Old times, you take what you want. There was always plenty. From one farmer, I bought a whole basket of bananas and three oranges for 35 cents, including the basket of plated pandanus leaves. Two men from this village are veterans of the 1st Battalion of World War II. Both were told to go by their chief who supposedly owed the U.S. government some debt and was repaying it with the bodies of his men. Then a not uncommon arrangement here, it seems. So for pennies a day, some of these men died, but all those who did return came home with malaria. One of the men was particularly large and ferocious looking. His calves were about 25 inches around, his neck at least 21 inches. He told me how the Fijians were used to spot Japanese snipers. Since most jungle flora is indistinguishable to temperate Americans, the Fijians showed Americans where to aim in trees. Thus, if the fronds of a coconut palm appeared to be growing out of a native hardwood tree, the Americans, directed by the Fijians' eyes, fired at this tree and often saved their own lives. Upon being discharged from the U.S. military, they were given a big gift, one axe, a knife and a fork and sent home. But I was told, you people feed them very well. Plenty food, plenty cigarette, plenty drink. I'll pause right there in my discussion and my journals from Fiji. A savage nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. So I wrote this as well. It's about herbs, food, calmness, and health. For all of my concern with good nutrition and the cleansing of our food supply, the use of herbs and other traditional concepts of health, I'm simply extending the logic of establishment medicine. All of these are superficial practices of disinfection and outward cleanliness, like the American restaurant while the inner practices of food production and preparation may be quite foul. The Chinese nation thrives, the population has increased, while other ancient peoples have dwindled into insignificance. Why? Because the Chinese possess a secret for the promotion of their physical well-being in the system of spiritual hygiene, that is mental hygiene, which advocates the practice of cultivating calmness of the heart and nurturing of mind. Uh-huh, that's very interesting. Professor Li Chung-yun a Chinese who died in 1935 at a great age, had a philosophy which taught that it is the part of wisdom to keep a quiet heart, sit like a tortoise, walk sprightly like a pigeon, and sleep like a dog. I can relate to that. Dr. Maxwell Bentley, now 73 years old, writes that Professor Lee's longevity was due to his strictly vegetarian diet, 
his calm and serene attitude toward life, and the fact that he regularly used two powerful rejuvenating herbs prepared as tea. These herbs were, and I'm not going to tell it to you right now, I'm going to keep it to me, and ginseng with a mint as flavor. I've been using them for 40 years and I'm fully aware of their potential. Isn't that interesting? So I then go on and I talk about other things. Now remember, you say, well, what is this about? Let me remind you, I spent many years going in and out of Fiji Islands collecting medicinal plants and bringing them back and codifying what they are and sending them to museums or herbarium around the world. So in the museums, you may find an entry for something uh, in the Teradaceae family called Teres tripartita soares, and the Fijian name is given Toka Toka Iratiri, and I write, this large fern, occasional in Fiji, is found around the world. Boils are treated through, through direct application of crushed leaves. In New Guinea, a concoction of the leaves is used to aid childbirth. That's the kind of entry that you might find. Now let's go back to my own uh, travels. And remember, I went to many of the islands. And one of the great deans of botany, a great expert on the palms of the world, many years later said to me, I looked at what you have done. He said, it's astounding that you visited so many islands and collected plants in so many islands in such a short period of time. How did you do it? So please don't dismiss this without understanding what ethnobotany is about. And so let me pick up with 1971 in my journals. I write, since my first trip here in 1969, I have found an increased emphasis within the islands on things Fijian. While plant medicines are still officially considered witch doctoring and remain illegal, I've noticed an increased willingness among the common people to discuss local medicine known as Waini Mate Vakaviti, native Fijian medicine. Waini Mate Vakaviti. Whenever I say that, it brings a smile of recognition from the elders who inquire of my doings in their country. It is now quite easy to find the best-known practitioners because the value of these practices has been reaccepted by the leaders. These islanders are becoming reaware of their own culture and refuse to grab every offering of the Western world. Fertilizers aren't much used in the village plantations, not because the people see the switch to agrochemicals as an addictive attachment to the outside world, but simply because they're too expensive and difficult to transport through mountainous terrain. Besides, they figure they've managed to feed themselves since antiquity without outside assistance, so why fool with a system of agriculture that works? Likewise with native medicine. It had sustained the Fijian people for ages, so it must have value. Vanuelevu, the second largest island in the group, about 2,000 square miles, the approximate size of the state of Delaware, appears to have been largely burned off by the slash-and-burn agricultural system formerly employed in these parts. The native flora have not regrown, of course. Look what happened in China 4,000 years ago. Forests were cleared to create agricultural land, which worked well for about 50 years. Then, as the topsoil was washed into the river, the land became useless and has remained that way for 4,000 years. No amount of fertilizers or man-made coaxing can do for that land what time alone had created, topsoil. The Yellow River has since become known as the unconquerable, the scourge of the sons of Han, China's sorrow. How do you like that one? Hmm? And so we go on and look at other things that I will think of will be of some interest to you. Here's one that I think you will like. How a healer was given the gift of herbalism. 
And I write, I met the author of the following letter on an airplane in Fiji. She promised to send me the story of her grandmother, Jessie Ray, a well-known herbalist, as well as some of her remedies. Her letter arrived soon after I returned to Honolulu. Here it is. Dear Michael, the following is a short history of how my grandmother, Jessie Ray, was given the gift of herbalism by an old friend, Maria Tahiti, who received it from her father on his deathbed. My grandmother, on her deathbed, passed it on to my brother, who now resides in New Zealand. And though I know most of them through our mother, we cannot use them for healing others, as a certain amount of protocol is attached. Maria Tahiti, as she was commonly known throughout Fiji, was born of a Tahitian father and a Fijian mother from the islands of Lao. She was probably one of the most respected herbalists in Fiji during her lifetime. Maria was married to a Fijian by the name of Ben Rewalui and lived most of her life in Fiji, mainly at the village Usunosuki in the Walu Bay area of Suva. My grandmother, after several miscarriages, decided to call on Maria for medicine and treatment. Before proceeding any further, she had to promise Maria that the child born in this treatment would belong to Maria. Alex Ray, my uncle, was that child, and he lived with her until he was 14 years old, only returning to his own mother after Maria's death in 1910 at the age of 53. During their following years of friendship, Maria passed on her knowledge of herbalism to Jesse Ray, who practiced this art until her own death in 1953 at the age of 94 years. One of Maria's stipulations was that Jesse never make a wild guess as to the ailment of her patients, that she be certain in her own mind before administering treatment accordingly. This she did and became very well known amongst her own people, who would travel near and far for consultation. Maria died as the result of standing on a stonefish while out on the reef fishing. She was taken to the hospital where they amputated the leg above the knee. This did no good, so they performed a second operation a little later, removing the leg altogether, but to no avail. Maria Tahiti died. A woman who had saved a great many lives died because she would not make a wild guess as to the remedy if there was one for stonefish poisoning. I make a footnote. One remedy for stonefish sting is found in the pharmacopoeia at the end of this book. Had Maria Tahiti known this remedy, perhaps her life would have been saved. It's very interesting. So she concludes the letter to me at the time and says, So there you have it, Michael, as best as I know it. I stayed on the Nandy side at the island for more than a week, and the above could not be written before seeking my mother's permission. She has agreed to the following, providing you are not going to practice this yourself. This knowledge is not given away easily. And as I said above, certain protocol must be followed. I and my mother cannot practice herbalism as my grandmother did because she passed the knowledge during certain ceremonies to my brother. And this belief I respect as I hope you do too. I wish you every success with your new book and look forward to perhaps seeing you in Suva in September. Yours in friendship, Liebling Marlowe. And then I have a list of some of the medicines practiced by Jesse Ray in my book, Secrets of Fijian Medicine, which I told you was published a long time ago by the United Nations and ripped off by a local corrupt book dealer in Fiji. So there are copies of this book around, and I intend to uh, reprint it at some point for you to grab a hold of a copy so you can look at it yourself, which has all of the uh, plants in it. Now, where shall I go from here? Well, I have a lot of writings and ramblings from my journals, and uh, including... Uh, some headlines like visit to the bone doctor. What's the bone doctor? Well, he was a man who knew how to treat impotence with a plant long before Viagra came along. I never met him, nor did I try the plant.
but I was told it really works well. And what's the point of it if you can just buy Viagra today? Anyway, there's other things in this book that would be of some interest to you, including what it was like to drink kava kava in the villages uh, and the dangers of kava kava drinking or yangona. Uh, I wrote a piece called The Healer is Deviant. Malpractice by professors should be penalized. How much time do we need to study another culture? Things of this nature. I don't know if they're of any interest to many of you. How do we know what works as a remedy? Poison oak treatment, unduplicated environment, a healer loses her powers. Again, the bone man, plants are largely water. The craftiness of a healer, evolution or creation, science or art, essay on the conservation of life, and things of that nature. Maybe I'll begin with essay on the conservation of life when I come back. Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. I could almost change the title of this podcast from Fijian Medicine, Secrets of Fijian Medicine, Fiji Medicinal Plants, to the journals, the travels in the South Pacific. In either case, that's what you're hearing. When I was a young ethnobotanist traveling throughout the islands, long before there was Fiji water, there was Fiji. And long after Fiji water, there will still be a Fiji. But I'll talk about that another time. I don't know how they could be given away the water in their aquifer like this. Uh, aquifers eventually dry up. But, you know, that's a problem of politics. It's not for me to discuss right now. So let me pick up where I left off. This is called Essay on Conservation of Life. Let's put some perspective on this question of finding the elixir of, of immortality. That is, is it worth investigating herbal medicine to discover some secrets for long life? Let's go back to China some thousand years ago. How did any one man look at the significance of this question while shaving, cooking a chicken, or drinking wine? Was he content with how his time was passing? Did he struggle with considerations as to leaving or staying in a secure office job to seek an existence that would enable him to live longer? Well, to be sure, there was such a man. There was such an office. There were such questions. In fact, Su Tung Po lived long before the discovery of America, 300 years before Chaucer, half a millennium before Shakespeare. Yet when the records of England were scanty and vague, those of China were vast. Yet how do we know what this man in China felt and thought a thousand years ago? Lin Yu Tang, his biographer, lists 124 major sources about the most loved and admired scholar of his times, for a century after his death, there was not an important book of memoirs which did not have something to say about the poet. Can you believe this? Su Tung Po, lived between 1036 and 1101 AD, has much to say about his quest for Chang Sheng, or immortal life. And we may as well dip into his perspective on the question. While Su Tung Po obviously didn't find the elixir of immortality, one comes back always to the principles of moderation, simple living, enough work, enough rest, and above all, no worries and avoiding emotional disturbances of all kinds. In other words, one always comes back to common sense. Su Tung Po expressed his common sense philosophy of simple living in the form of four rules for living, which he had culled from the ancient books. One, having leisure equals having power. Two, going to bed early equals having wealth. 
Three, a leisurely stroll is as enjoyable as a drive. Four, eating late is as good as eating meat. I love those. Don't you love those? They're beautiful. And here's how I close this section. September, SS Santa Magdalena, off the California coast, approaching San Francisco. After a week's cruise to Vancouver and return, I've not discovered anything new. With all good intentions of using the theme that the sea was Melville's, Harvard, and Yale, I've scarcely spent a few hours looking at the ocean, too absorbed in my own problems. The highlight for me was an evening in Vancouver where I chanced on a conference of humanity. Big gun speaking was Buckminster Fuller. I circulated in the third floor lobby of the elegant new hotel, talking with the many people there encamped. Like a caravan of holy pilgrims selling everything from religious shoes to good spirits. One girl nursing her infant on the floor, both asleep against the pack sack. It was stimulating after three days aboard ship with canned music and waste the only sport. I like what one smiling convert from Berkeley had to say about reprogramming my addictions, but came away redoubled in believing that such intense concern with self-peace is ultimately the death of all of us. Do we have the luxury to meditate on our inner being's loveliness? Isn't this turning in at this time in North American history an expression of our hopelessness in affecting change? These Eastern religions, after all, were developed at a time when people had very little to do with themselves but meditate on their existence. And now that my fellows have failed in their attempt to make the external world over in their image, they turn to their inner world, the only new horizon for their pioneering spirits. Yet I think of people who I've admired for their ability to make things work, not simply by belief alone, but by struggling. Golda Meir, as a maker of Israel, comes to mind. Read her biography and see what true strength can achieve. How can you pass such days of quiet and calm while human life is sore beset with ills? So wrote Su Tung Po, our thousand-year-old Chinese in 1078. While achieving a mystic sense of spiritual freedom, as expressed in his poems and paintings, he originated paintings of bamboo and ink. Despite great obstacles and too long exiles, he managed to save thousands from sure death through impressive reforms in taxation and inventive methods of famine relief. Meditation, yes, but bring that strength back to the living world to alleviate suffering, never mind lengthening an already lengthy existence, I wrote. And here's how I end this little book. In the main hall of American Museum of Natural History, December, New York City. This is my church, the Church of Natural History, writing in the main hall, and music softens my hardness, hardens my softness, nudging my incompleteness. Just toward the hall, birds of the Pacific, nothing to compare with these dioramas from majesty and accuracy. Visit the scene atop a Kauai Mountain or a Korumbaba Ridge. Top view of the irregular southern coast of Viti Levu, Banga Island in the distance. I have been there. I have seen those islands. I am home. Yet no ticker tape awaits me. I wander here unknown as in my first boyhood joy visits, yet feel no loss. I have now found my place in time, a world traveler, a botanist, a writer back to my beginnings, a city of possibilities, so many chances, so many dreams spawned in the darkness, the terror of meteorological, social, and personal crises. The city is not dying, just changing. We must pray the other cultures new to our city will learn to see our institutions for the treasures that they are. The end of the beginning, December 31st, 1976, Long Island. Crunching across the snow-blown sunny graveyard to my father's tomb, 
I fulfill my promise of October when I read in the Jews in medicine that a religious Jew's greatest fear is that his son will not say cottage for him asking entry of his soul to heaven. I have never known that. Perhaps now my father's soul will lift my multiple vision collecting into one. A simple heartfelt prayer and then my mother leads me and my son to my brother Jerome's poor tombstone frozen over with ice and unreadable. Jay waiting in the car at my request. She is pregnant. The snow blowing over Russian tombstones. Cohen and David's son. Lefkowitz and Abrams. Bauman and Goldfarb. Applebaum and Wiener. Gravestones all in life. Mere passerbys joined in what? A portion of Long Island potato fields. Remembrances of Vietnamese fighting to preserve the graves of ancestors. And so I end the book in this section with the following. After visiting the graveyard of my father and brother. And now, hours later, I'm the same man as before. Do our rituals mean anything? If they no longer serve to satisfy the living, can they serve the dead? What the hell is this life about? Brief and cold, quick, it's over electric. The only meaning I find is our language, meaning especially our written language. Animals may speak, they do not write. They may treat themselves with medicine, grasses, barks, lichens, etc. But they do not pray, and aside from the elephants, they do not bury their dead and worship the tombs. Life is thought transferred to action. One other entry I think you may be interested in. It's a short one. Hmm. A healer loses her powers. That's an interesting one. A healer loses her powers. A short one. And here's how I wrote it. A cockroach struggles to right itself on the wharf, probably nerve poisoned by a fumigant used on ginger roots. Do subtle poisons contaminate every morsel that we eat, I asked. Off to a late start, I don't know where the day will lead me. We'll drive to Wandina River and inquire if Mrs. W. is in her village before hiring a boat. If she is not in her village, perhaps we'll go see the bone man or a sorcerer, as suggested by Dom. At Wainawaka Village, river crossing. Last boat just left upriver. Pouring rain, a pyramid of fuel drums to feed the hungry gold mine at Namosi. After all the driving and the hurry, fate does not have anything more to tell me about Mr. Wilcombe. We leave. At the agricultural rest station, I meet my old friend, the boatman who took us to Mr. W in 1973. On inquiring about her, I learn that she has lost her healing powers. No more medicine. The magic goes away, he tells me. That's the way it is in Fiji. The magic is only good for certain periods. Her real name is Carolina, I now learn. Her magic could come back, but she has lost her power because she has not met the special conditions required of a healer such as not to touch certain foods, not to accept money for her healing and such. He says he recently saw her and she is now normal, no longer wears her dark glasses. I learned that she lost her powers about three months ago. The boatman tells me that the first time he met her, she laid on the mat like a snake because Degi appears like a snake. Degi is the Fijian paramount god. The real Mr. Wilcombe is thought of as the gatekeeper of Daegi. And that's the end of that. It's very interesting because I met Mr. Wilcombe later on or before that. I don't remember which, but I have a list of her remedies. I even have a wonderful picture of Mr. Wilcombe. A wonderful picture with the great Nikon F camera I was using at the time. This is Michael Savage. And this is the podcast that you've all been waiting for. Thanks for listening.
Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed and learned something from it. And I want to remind you of something that I think is important for you to know. We have over 280 Savage Nation podcast episodes available to you absolutely free. I'll say that again. You can go back into this vast library of over 280 episodes and listen to any one of them or several of them at your leisure. So you never have to be without the Savage Nation. Thank you very much for listening.